Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. It's on. Welcome in. David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years plus of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how was the Memorial Day weekend? Oh, man, I liked it. It was extremely enjoyable. And, uh, yeah, I'm watching a lot of television. And uh, everybody's kind of uh, talking about and paying attention to uh, some of our fallen soldiers, man. Uh, and uh, what a wonderful deal that we have in this country. When we take the time to to remember those that, that died so that we can all live this life, this great life we live, man. Man, you can live that life wherever you want in the beautiful hills of Tennessee, down by the ocean in St. Pete or in Southeast Alabama or in California, you can live it. That's exactly how it is. All right, listen, let's start off today by congratulating you for having back-to-back record studcast weeks with the two-part 200th Studcast. That is awesome. Fans around the world are sending compliments, and I'm noticing on on all, on your social media, fantastic comments about it as well. It's got to feel great. Oh yeah, man, and it, it certainly does. You know, uh, and and I want to thank John Edwards again one last time. Uh, you know, for for his great suggestion, and uh, you know, we're just getting started on this ride, Dave. You know, we we've had uh, less than. We're about uh, we're a little less than four years into a fourteen year journey. By the time yeah. we're going to get through Southeastern, uh, we're going to introduce Continental. Uh, we're going to finish up with USA Wrestling History. Uh, we got hundreds of new wrestlers and angles all still in front of us, man. We got expansion. We got a wrestling war we haven't gotten to yet. We got the first sale, a uh, huge success of Southeastern in Pensacola. The development of a new company, a new television program, a second expansion coming from the Gulf of Mexico uh, all the way to Ohio and much more, man. So, uh, you know, we, we're, we're just getting rolling here. Oh, absolutely. I thought Brian last was pretty funny the other day listening to uh, both of those episodes where he said, hey, you're 200 episodes in. You're only 200 episodes away. And I forgot what he was talking about. I, he made it sound so easy. But uh, and listen, you've made it sound very easy over this period of your life. And we're going to keep going this story of your life in wrestling, by the way, is going to be a phenomenal ride. And really we're, as we, as you said, we're just getting going. The first 200 episodes made this journey truly remarkable so far. So it's just so much fun to be a part of it. And I'm glad to be a part of this team. Well, man, I'm glad to have you on board, man. You are an important part of it. And, uh, we have so much more still coming. So, uh, Heck, man, I, I say uh, I'm raring to go. You know, uh, we've we've had a couple of uh, programs that aren't in the normal form and fashion, and I'm ready to jump back in here uh, to where we were, basically, and uh, we're going to be doing number 201 today, Dave, and uh, I look forward to all of them. Awesome. Number 201. Here we go, stud. So where do we ride to today? Well, we're going to start back uh, with that uh, very popular uh, Today's Training, little segment that we do on the opening of most of these shows. And this one comes from that 
often used wrestling phrase, get over. Uh, you know, and it comes from a story in the recent Super Stud cast with Arn Anderson. So, <laughs> so uh, we're going to return to the ring, uh, obviously, in this one. And on May 19th, 1977, back in the Knoxville Coliseum, we got another great card there. We got a World Junior Heavyweight Championship match. We got a Southeastern title match. We got Armstrong versus Lawler. We got Mr. Knoxville and Robert Fuller versus Devon Steigers and more on that card. Then we got a new learning tree question on the end of this one today that's going to lead us into Terry Funk coming back to Southeastern again. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like we're going to be coming back as strong as when we left before the two-part number 200 special studcast. So let's do it, stud. Okay, so uh, let's let's start right into this today's training. Uh, things were rocking, you know, when we left the normal studcast two weeks ago. And uh, at this point, man, we're about to catch fire here in Southeastern again. So let's get right into today's training. And is going to have us wearing a wrestler's hat which we haven't worn in a while. And it's going to focus on what wrestlers had to do to get over and exactly what that term get over meant. So let's start uh, this today's training with the meaning of getting over for a wrestler and a booker. We'll, uh, we'll add a booker into a little bit of this because he's a, he's a big part of it. So it was a critical and always, and uh, something that always had to happen for a wrestler to get to the top of the card. And for a booker to get the results he wanted, which obviously uh, when you got over and he put you on top, he wanted to see those big houses. And so did the owner <laughs> because that booker's yeah. job went along with that as well as the wrestler too. So I want to start this one off today with a short story. And this one was told to me by Arn Anderson in the last Super Stud cast about this very topic. You know, he just arrived in a new territory. And he was sent to meet a star he had never met before, who happened to be the booker, and his name was Dusty Rhodes. And he knocked on Dusty's office door, and after a long pause, he, he was finally asked to come in. So now, Dusty, and knowing Dusty, I could I got the picture right away when Arn starts to tell me about it. He said, Dusty's all reared back in his chair. He's got his cowboy boots propped up on his desk. <laughs> and uh and as Dusty did sometimes, you know, when Arn came in, Dusty said absolutely nothing to him. Arn stood there in front of him for a few seconds, and and uh, he waited for Dusty to say something to him, and he finally <laughs> just sat down. There was an empty chair there, and he sat down at the desk across from Dusty. So Dusty still, as he sometimes did, said nothing for another long pause. And finally, the American dream asked him, he says, uh, <laughs> tell me about yourself, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and Arn naturally, he didn't know where to begin, you know, <laughs> or what information Dusty wanted, you know, but, but Dusty didn't say, didn't help him either. He didn't say anything else. Right. So right. the game to tell his story, you know, what the hell? He asked me to tell me, tell me about yourself. So Arn started telling his story. And he talked to him for a few minutes, and then he was hoping that he's going to say something Dusty wanted to hear, right? Something good that Dusty was going to get into. And uh, at the end of it, he got nothing from Dusty. Uh, no nods, no smile, no reaction whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, so he said he didn't know whether to go on or not. So he just quit talking. He went silent. So, uh, you know, and as Arm described it, uh, you know, they sat there looking at each other and not saying a word. Arn said, seemed like for minutes went by, you know, and then finally <laughs> Dusty says, you know, and, and Dusty spoke most times in this almost un, non-understandable style. Uh -huh. He said just three words, darn. He says, uh, go get over. Go, go get over? <laughs> and the, well, that's what, that's what Arn said. Arn said, I didn't understand what he said. You know, he only said three words and I didn't get it. You know, I couldn't hear it, you know. And he said, I, I hated to say something about it, you know, but he says there was a big, long period of silence again. So he said, finally, I'd ask. <laughs> so, so he asked him, what did you say? And, and Dusty looked at him slowly for another long period of time, again in silence. And then he finally said, go get over. And, and this time, Arm seemed to understand the words, you know. But 
And, you know, and he, and he, 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 you know, he knew what he meant by that, you know, but, uh, he was expecting much more, obviously. So, you know, he sat there waiting for something else from him, you know, and nothing else was said by either one of them. And they both just looked at each other. So finally, Arn just got up. He said, thanks. <laughs> and he left the office. <laughs> so obviously, Arn left very confused. <laughs> but he'd just been told the only three words that any top talent in professional wrestling had to do to become a star. You had to go get over. Mm-hmm. And that meant to make yourself a star. And you had to do that by doing things that nobody else was doing. You had to separate yourself. You had to spotlight yourself. You had to separate yourself from all the rest of the wrestlers that were in the territory in whatever manner you had to. You know, you had to figure out how to separate yourself. You had to go in the ring and work harder than the rest of them. You had to have a better finish than the rest of them. Or you had to develop one if you didn't have it. Uh, You had to do better interviews than the rest. You had to get more blood than the rest of them when you were asked to. So basically, you had to take your body and your business to the extreme to take those fans with you, man. So that's exactly what you had to do to get over. So take everything. You did to the extreme. It was up to you to get over. If you wanted to work on top, Arn knew it. Every guy that's smart and gets there, he understands what the process is and what has to happen. So the words, go get over, pretty easy to say, but very difficult to accomplish. Uh, Bookers love those guys that knew how to go get over, man. Fans love those guys that knew how to go get over because they gave them great matches. And owners of wrestling companies, they really loved those guys that knew how to go get over. It was what being an athlete was all about, and the wrestlers could do it. The ones that could, they were always going to be stars, no matter where they went. Wow. A perfect setup as you move through this story for what I think was one of the best super studcasts ever. And that's a great story for today's training. Obviously, Arn Anderson. Knew how to get over, and nobody. Well, I'm I'm sure he had some instruction along the way, but the, three words from Dusty Rhodes, and that was it. All right, so there are that many, and there are a ton of great stories in Super Studcast number forty-one. Now at tnstud.com or at Patreon.com/slash/studcast, only two ninety-nine for three hours of the fascinating Arn Anderson story. You can hear Arn tell the story, and it's it's an awesome. Awesome way to go on Super Studcast number 41. All right, so where are we riding to next, Doug? Okay, we're, we're headed into the Knoxville Coliseum again, man. And we got another huge card until May 19th, 1977. The opening match on the card is Jerry Stubbs against a newcomer named Billy Howard. Mike Stallings was taking on Norvell Austin. And the big fast-rising star out of Memphis, Tommy Gilbert, was uh, up against the guy that was a really overdue at this point for Southeastern, Bob Orton Jr. Bob Armstrong was matched with the Southern heavyweight champion, Jerry Lawler, in an ODQ non-championship match. Robert Fuller and Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, were also in a non-title match with the Von Steiger brothers, Kurt and Carl. For the Southeastern heavyweight title on this card, it was called the Battle of the Far East, which was a great name for it because the champion Mongolian stomper managed by gorgeous George Jr. was going to face off against Tora Tanaka. The main event was the new Southeastern wrestling star, Tony Charles, wrestling for the World Junior Heavyweight Championship belt of Nelson Royal. Man, there's another tremendous card right there. Those top four matches were really outstanding, Ron. I can't wait to hear how the United Kingdom star, Tony Charles, and his English style did against the veteran Nelson Royal. I know you got info on that coming up. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, Royal, you know, obviously Royal, in his case, was not unfamiliar with the English style. He'd been to that part of the world many times in his career at this point. Uh, he's a wily old veteran by here in this stage in his career. And uh, however, he's going to be facing in Tony Charles, one of the greatest challengers in the world for his title. And this was truly going to be a world-class matchup. All right. So, Ron, before we get to the results on this card, aren't we going to talk about the TV show of May 13th of 77 that promoted it? 
and isn't a TV rating period right around here somewhere around for May of 77, Ron? What's up with that? That's correct, man. You're right on it, man. You you must be on Mr. Pickles again, man. <laughs> you know, you and you and Mr. Pickles are doing a pretty decent job of keeping up here. Yeah, you got uh, you got all that right. And uh, you know, maybe you're finally riding a winner here, man. This Mr. Pickles for you. Thanks man. for noticing. Thank you very much. Well, the, you know, and I'm probably going to knock him before the show's over, but uh, I don't doubt that either. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna say something nice about him now. So. And speaking of winners, man, uh, this TV is just that, man. It's another one of those TVs that we were stringing together just kept raising those ratings, man. So my idea for rating month in May of 1977 was a championship match on TV every Saturday. And we announced that at the beginning of the month, and we gave them that every week during the month. And actually, it had already begun the Saturday before when I was defending the TV championship against the Mongolian Stomper. And that was the match that Terry Funk had hit in the studio until the last TV match and sneaked in the ring, kicked me in the face with his cowboy boot, and the Stomper beat me for the TV title. So this TV was going to feature a World Junior Heavyweight title match with champion Nelson Royal defending his title. The TV opened up, obviously, with a close shot, as we always did. This close shot was of me. Pretty bloody, standing over top of Terry Funk. I've got my hand raised in the air, and Terry's laying down below me, and he's holding his right leg. Uh, studio fans reacted immediately. Fans at this point despised Funk so much that even a loss in a Texas death match wasn't enough to kill his heat. <laughs> I mean, the fans just could see him, the picture of him, and that's all it took. So, you know, when the camera backed away from the still shot, fans. This began to boo even worse because they saw Terry Funk again <laughs> and it didn't make any difference. Even if it was a video of him losing, there was no way that they could feel anything but but disdain for that dude. So there I was. I was bandaged. I had a, you know, I'm sitting at the set with Les and I've got a partially black eye. And Les asked the director to back up the video so they can show the entire segment of that Texas death match with me and Terry Funk from the point where I put the fuller leg lock on Funk. And it clearly displayed the tremendous struggle that Terry made trying not to give up. Wow, I, I kind of explained it when we did this studcast a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, I almost got tears in my eyes myself. He actually cried. It was It was horrible. All right, that's interesting. So was Funk really crying because he was in pain, or was he putting your move over, or, or was it both? Oh, jeez, man. I, you know, I think it was a little of both. You know, ter Terry was such a tremendous worker, but, uh, you know, he sold it to the point where I felt sorry for him. I kind of started thinking, man, I, give up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go ahead, Terry, give it up. You know? Right, right. And I, I saw those tears. I was like, wow, I think he's really crying. So, you know, wow. but it was all obviously he was one to display, man, with that tremendous struggle, how painful that hold was. And um, then at this point, he wasn't able to get to his feet. And after the 30 second rest period uh, and uh, before the ref counted him out uh, with a 10 count and then he raised my hand, you know, uh, I was feeling bad for him, you know. The, but then one of the most impressive things about this, Dave, was the uh, on the video was the intense crowd. Wow, the noise from that immense crowd was just huge. There were 6,000 fans in the Coliseum that mm -hmm. the night before this TV. It was mm -hmm. on the Friday night before the TV. When they realized that he was going to lose in an extremely rare Texas death match for him, which he didn't hardly ever lose those type of matches they got louder than ever it was really really an amazing thing uh, just to listen to the crowd alone obviously les congratulated me for the win and having earned a chance for another shot six weeks later at harley race again for the nwa world title that was what this match was all about this texas death match whoever won this one was going to get harley race six weeks later uh, in knoxville again and he also asked if I would like to join him for the entire show, you know, and I, and I agreed. 
I wasn't actually wrestling on that card, anywhere on that card. And so I, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So uh, Phil Rainey introduced the opponent for the star of the first TV match. And this for the studio erupted man, as soon as uh, these two came in the studio, Mongolian Stomper wearing his southeastern belt <laughs> and gorgeous George Jr. behind him carrying that huge TV trophy. It was as tall as gorgeous George. You know, I mean, it was like it was hard for him to carry. And so uh, gorgeous George, Gigi, as I call him, you know, right. he was all smile, man. And why not? His man owned every, every bit of the hardware in Southeastern just about. <laughs> you know, he, he had a dude that was getting it done. So the Stomper was just the opposite, though, of his manager, man. He seemed to be really upset from the very beginning. And uh, when the bell rang, he punished his opponent more than usual, man. Before finally he got the three count, he finally covered him. I felt sorry for the dude, man. He covered him, and it was over on the three count. But, you know, he, he didn't cover him like he normally did. He just stood above him and put his foot on his chest, and the ref <laughs> counted him out. So, so you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, George really liked that part. Uh, that brought a big, uh, big smile to his face again. So yeah. I left the set with a stomper's hand got raised, you know, because I knew that they were coming back to the set that was going to watch a video. So both the stomper and George's George came straight back to the set. They brought this belt and his trophy. And stomper started pacing behind Gigi as he normally did. And Les had the director run the video from the night before. And we're talking about this 10-round boxing match that they had had the night before between the Mongolian Stomper and Bob Armstrong. Tanaka was in Bob Armstrong's corner, and Gigi was in the Stomper's corner. Mm -hmm. So the video began about the fifth round in this boxing match. And it began just about the time that the Stomper took this big right hand from Armstrong, and he went down hard. And I'd watched the boxing match. It'd been, it was the third round in a row he'd gone down. So the referee began his 10 count, and about halfway through it, gorgeous George Jr. jumped on the apron. And then he just crawled through the ropes and started in the ring. So uh, Bob Armstrong, you know, once Stomper went down, the referee told him to go to a neutral corner. And when he saw Gigi enter the ring, well, he went for Gigi, which he would normally do. He's got no business being in the ring. So the ref stopped him, stopped, uh, you know, he, he had to quit making the count. He was about to count Stomper out, and uh, he had to stop his count, and he kind of got between the two of them to keep them from getting into something. And uh, the Stomper started getting up. He was going to be able to get up. He wasn't going to get counted out. He wasn't going to lose at that point. But uh ref still had his back to Stomper. And Tanaka just shot up in the ring, and he spun Stomper around, and he hit him with a karate chop in the throat. <laughs> and down Stomper went again. And uh, Tanaka just slid out onto the floor. And when the referee finally got Armstrong stopped and he got Gigi out of the ring, he turned around, and, and the Stomper's still down as far as he knew. So he starts his count over again, and he counts him out. <laughs> so... Uh, it was a, it was really an unusual victory, and uh, Tanaka obviously uh, got to, uh, the credit, should have got the credit for the win. So Gigi's watching this in the video, and boy, he made a real good point of uh, being right on top of it. He, 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 he said, "See me here, uh, see me there, see what the big Japanese monster's doing," and uh, you know, uh, we want him. Basically, he finishes this video by, "We want him." We want him. My man wants him. So Gigi, you know, once he says that, he turned his attention from Armstrong totally to the big old Japanese monster, he called him, toward Tanaka. He challenged Tanaka to a, what they what he called the Battle of the Far East for the next Friday night in the Coliseum against his Mongolian stomper. And then he really sweetened the pot. He threw in the title. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a shot as a Southeastern title if he'll get in the belt with my Mongolian. And uh, if he's got guts enough to face my Mongolian man to man. Wow. So Les thanked him for joining him. And he, he tried to shut down the first segment of the show, but Gigi wasn't finished. <laughs> and, yeah. He, he hadn't had his say. And he started again as he had done the same, the, the same way uh, the show before uh, when he was on the personality profile, 
and he started talking directly again to Mr. Knoxville. And again, he pulled out the big wad of cash that he had showed the week before. And, uh, and he asked Mr. Knoxville, you know, he didn't call him Mr. Knoxville. He called him Ronnie Garvin, you know, <laughs> how much he wanted, you know, same thing as the week before. How much of this do you want? What will it take to get you to return to the right dressing room, to the real stars of Southeastern? Well, that's made a really valid point. You know, he says, Ronnie Garvin's no longer here in Southeastern. <laughs> <laughs> GG. You know, there's a Mr. Knoxville, but you're talking to nobody. So Gigi got pissed. He <laughs> really mad. And he started <laughs> screaming that everyone knew the so-called Mr. Knoxville was really Ronnie Garvin. And then he, he, he got in Les's face and he says, are you really as stupid as those idiots sitting out here in the <laughs> studio and the idiots at home? Yeah. He said, are you stupid enough that you don't know that Ronnie Garvin is Mr. Knoxville? So, <laughs> Les got upset. <laughs> he fired right back. You know, he started telling Gigi, you know, uh, you might be better off leaving this set right now, Gigi, before I, Gorgeous George, he didn't call him Gigi, but Gorgeous George, before I throw you off of it. You know? <laughs> Boy, the studio crowd popped. They always like to see it. Les get upset. And Gigi just uh, took his stomper and left the set. I mean, like he never, he never questioned that. So um, Tanaka appeared, came in the studio at that point, live. He was live on the first time since uh, December of 1976, you know, first time on TV. And the studio audience went crazy, man, uh, when he went to the set. And uh, he told fans uh, how happy he was to be back in Southeastern and and, uh, you know, he, he did this as uh, his Japanese. He, he took out a few words here and there. But, you know, he say, happy see everybody. Happy going to be next Southeastern champion Friday night. Uh, he, he said, uh, Japanese people are more tough than Mongolians. He said, smarter than Mongolians. More handsome than Mongolians. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd loved that, man. <laughs> they popped pretty much on everything he said, you know. And he just kept going. He said, uh. To Les, he goes, uh, you know, Les, uh, the stomper must be ashamed of sissy manager he and I have. <laughs> <laughs> so to the stomper, he says, the uh, stomper not smart enough to see he do better than foo-foo manager. <laughs> so so uh, he says, Friday, uh, go, on, go on beat Mongol. Take belt. Bank sissy manager's butt. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and he got a big, an even bigger pop from the crowd. He did that. He, and he finished the interview. He, he went straight over, you know, when he finished, he went right straight to the studio crowd, which they didn't get a whole lot of that, man. And he was high-fiving everybody, and the camera was getting the close-up as the first segment closed. So it left a nice taste. And at the end of the first segment, uh, Tanaka had really, really popped him. So the next segment opened, obviously, with a bang because it was Bob Armstrong, and uh, he was live in wrestling, and he always got that studio going. Didn't make any difference when he was on the show. You knew you were going to get him up then, and he made quick work out of a big old guy out of the Kingsport area named Tony Peters, and he finished him off with one of his, what's going to soon be one of his famous sayings that he loved. He hit Tony Peters with the same thing, that he had hit Stomper with the night before, one of those jawjackers, he called it, those big <laughs> right hands. And then he went to the set with Les. You know, I was at this point still continuing to support Jerry Jarrett and my father. They were in this war on the other side of the state in Memphis with Nick Goulas to see who was going to end up with control of Memphis, Tennessee, so far as wrestling was concerned. And I had exchanged a bunch of guys and belts on the Harley race card three weeks earlier. And in fact, on that night, Bob had beat Jerry Lawler for the Southern Heavyweight Belt in Knoxville. And I'd held that belt myself in 1975 for about six months. So after Bob won the Lawler belt from him on the Harley card, Bob flew to Memphis 10 days later on a Monday night, and Lawler stole it back from him. So the Coliseum card for Friday, this Friday that was coming up, had Lawler versus Bob and a no DQ, no title at stake 
that Lawler didn't want to put the belt up because, you know, he'd already lost it the last time he came to Knoxville. Bob and Les watched the match from Memphis that uh, they had recorded over there. They had started to shoot videos like we were. They were beginning to figure out how impressive it was and how effective it was. So uh, they watched this match back uh, where Lawler won the belt. And in the next interview segment, Bob watched an interview that uh, Lawler made in Memphis and was sent from Memphis to us that we showed in the interview segment. So since this Studcast Day being released only two days after Memorial Day in 2021, I want to honor my favorite Marine uh, who passed away last fall, Bob Armstrong. And and I just want to say, you know, we already talked about it just briefly. I want to honor all those servicemen and, and women that that have given it all, man, to, for us all. And uh, Bob Armstrong uh, will always have a place in my heart, and uh, he'll never be forgotten. Oh, no doubt. All gave some, some gave all. That is a very thoughtful gesture, Ron. He meant a lot to his family and, and your family, of course, and all the wrestling fans around the world, no doubt. Yeah, to me, Dave, uh, I feel like a member of his family. I feel like I grew up with him, you know, and uh, and, and, and I said before, a guy like Bob Armstrong would truly never be forgotten. Oh, no doubt. You've talked about Bob on a number of Studcast and Super Studcast over time, and folks can find those at tnstud.com, tnstud.com, and patreon.com slash studcast. That is a special tribute right there, Stud. Hey, this is a great place to take a break. Let's do that. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Every Super Studcast is special for the stud. Super number 41 is really special for many reasons. Arn Anderson is the main reason for number 41 being so special. Arn and Ron enjoy each other's stories, and so will you. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, Arn opens his heart and his storybook. He covers everything from his upbringing to his painful finish. Dealing with such pain, he asked his friend to bring him a gun in the hospital so he could end it all. His Southeastern days to WWE days where he was put in charge of John Cena's career. The stories are awesome and go in all directions. Super Studcast number 41 is really what they're all about. The life and times of one of the sports greatest. This one is the enforcer. It's all Arn Anderson at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three tremendous hours, only $2.99. This one proves it. It's the best deal in wrestling. Hey, we are back. Another stud cast. David Summers here with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller and episode number 200 part one and two was really everything that you thought it would be everything we thought it would be stud. So congratulations once again. And if anybody's missed that, it's a great opportunity. You can always find those stud casts at tnstud.com episode 200 part one and 200 part two. And you can pick up right there, and then you haven't missed a thing. All right, so here we are, episode number 201, and we're right back into the show. So where do we ride to next, Ron? We're going to ride into the personality profile. And this is this show is on Saturday, May 13th, 1977. And uh, this particular profile was exactly what each personality profile was designed to be, man. Uh the profile was designed to be a look into a wrestler's private life as well as his wrestling life. And uh, Les really loved this kind. This one was really spectacular and exactly what uh, we had dreamed of when we, we, when we came up with the idea of putting a personality profile into a wrestling program. Uh, and this particular guest on this day had been in Southeastern for only five weeks. But he had made an awesome impression with all the fans all across the Southeast, uh, enough that he was going to be the main event in the following Friday night, and he had the opportunity to wrestle for the World Junior Heavyweight Championship of Nelson Royal. And I could only be talking about one guy, the United Kingdom star, Tony Charles. And uh, he came out, personality profile, had a seat uh, by Les, And uh, we did this one in front of a live audience because uh, Tony was becoming so popular. I felt like we would get a lot of reaction from our audience. So during this profile, they discussed a whole lot of things. 
They talked about his family, his hobbies, even how he liked America. They got into that, how he liked and enjoyed being in America now. And in all my days, I had never seen a wrestler that have been so accepted and so admired so quickly by so many people as Tony Charles. He had a sparkling smile and a sparkling personality, too. And as soon as he entered buildings anywhere in the southeast, fans just flocked to him. They they ran uh, across the buildings and out of the stands to get to Tony Charles. And I'd never seen that before with the wrestler. And he took the time for everybody. He'd sign every autograph every night in every city until every fan got one. He just was committed to the fans. And his skills in the ring were truly amazing. And his skills, not just his professional wrestling moves, but uh, he had the most powerful forearm to the head that I think I'd ever seen, man. He only used it when he got mad. You know, he didn't use it very much, you know, and he used it. He never threw a real, a regular punch like other guys. He only got really angry. He would use this forearm smash up side of the head. Those forearm blows, when he did it, you could hear those those shots, men, to the head. The fans in the stands, you'd think they heard it, too, and they felt it, too, because they'd gasp, man, <laughs> almost in pain every time he did it to somebody. So this profile had a little bit of everything, including a demonstration at the end of it by Tony Charles with those unique uh, Indian clubs that we talked about in uh, Studcast number 199. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he brought those two 40-pound giant wooden uh, mudgars, they were called. That was the name for the actual clubs. Uh, And they were... Thousands for thousands of years, uh, people in India and that part of the world had been using those to train with. So he enlists, obviously, the move, the chairs back out of the way. So Tony had room to swing the clubs. And he began that awesome sight uh, as Les watched, along with a studio audience that was just enthralled by it. it. Unless you had ever seen that done before, it was truly an amazing thing to watch. So they almost immediately, the studio got so into it, they began to clap and they were just so appreciative of this rare exhibition they were witnessing, right? And uh, so suddenly, man, uh, Nelson Royal, man, the world junior champion, he stepped out around the corner from the studio behind where they were doing this. It was dark. And he stepped into the light and uh, Tony had his back turned. He never saw him coming. Uh Nelson Royal, man. Nailed Tony in the middle of his exhibition. He had those clubs swinging. He just nailed him in the back, knocked him down face first on the concrete, and Tony slid across the floor toward the studio crowd. Uh, You know, and they were all backing up and screaming. So all of a sudden, this great personality profile turned into something quite different, man, (laughs) instantly. So the fans, uh, you know, they, they began to jump out of the way and they started booing, obviously. And Royal grabbed up one of the huge clubs from the floor and he raised it over Tony's head. He was standing behind Tony and Tony was just starting to get up on his hands and knees. I thought, hey, surely not. He's not going to hit him in the head with that 40 pound hunk uh, of wood. Right. <laughs> and uh, the studio was in total mayhem at this point, man. They were all crazy, going crazy. And Les ran over and grabbed the club out of Royal's hand from behind, jerked it out of his hand. Tony ended up scrambling up to his feet, and Royal disappeared, man. As soon as he he lost his tool and his club he was about to use, he just ran back into the uh, darkened studio. And uh, Tony started to go after him, but uh, Les stopped him, you know. And uh, and then Les tried to get control of his now, they had messed up Les's personality profile. That was his baby. You know? <laughs> so Les tried to apologize to Tony about what had happened as best he could. And he quickly, obviously, brought the personality profile to an end. But the studio and everything was still crazy. So uh, it was quite a segment. Mm. Yeah, no, no doubt. And a pretty good cheap shot. Nelson Royal took a Tony Charles. And actually similar to what Terry Funk had done to you the Saturday before that had had to be getting some pretty good heat going. <laughs> I guess it did, man. It certainly did. You know, uh, 
So Nelson Roy, you know, he was beginning to get almost as much heat every time he came to Southeastern as Terry Funk had, you know. So it wasn't over yet either, you know. So what had just happened, it put a lot of emphasis on World Junior title matches with Nelson Roy because Nelson Roy was getting hot. So, in fact, uh, you know, World Junior title matches became a much more an emphasis for Southeastern in the future because we were sitting there on top of some great young super junior heavyweights, man. Uh, you know, you had the young Jerry Stubbs. You had a young Mike Stallings. You had uh, Jimmy Golden, who had just been beat and gone at this point. But we got another one of those that's coming there named Rick Gibson back. It's come Ricky Gibson's coming back. You know, we had some great junior heavyweight talent there. And uh, Nelson Royal getting over the way he was, it was good. Oh, no doubt. So, I mean, if it wasn't over, so what next? Well, it sounds like your horse, Mr. Pickles, is getting a little too excited there, Dave. The <laughs> show's only about half over, man, you know? Right. So, okay. so, so, you know, normally there's no break uh, between the personality profile and the third match. But the director this day stopped the tape. And he allowed the studio fans to get back in their seats. He allowed less enough time to reset himself and to get his uh, get his his madness and the, and anger uh, kind of under control before we started the third segment of the show. Mm. All right. So, uh, all right. Just so you know, I got Mr. Pickles calmed down. So, what came next? Well, you know, Dave, it's it's awful easy sometimes to blame your horse. Right. He says, lay, lay off, lay off Mr. Pickles. He's <laughs> I'm sensitive. <laughs> right. Okay. Sorry, Dave. So Mr. Knoxville and, and Rob, they popped the audience, man. They entered in the studio, man. They calmed the studio down and all of a sudden, bang, here they come. Rob and Mr. Knoxville and Ronnie Garvin's return under the mask had really fired up the fans all across the Southeast. And he and Rob, obviously, they got a big win that day. And uh, Mr. Knoxville, during the course of this one, at the end of it, dropped another one of those bombs across the throat of one of his opponents off the top rope. And about the same time, Rob was putting a fuller leg lock on the other one. So the studio crowd loved it, man. And they forgot pretty much all about the personality profile. Rob and Mr. Knoxville went to the set with Les. The Von Steiger brothers went into Studio B for the next interview. They're going to be wrestling each other for the title the next Friday night. So they quickly, uh, you know, explained that the team of Rob, Robert Fuller and Mr. Knoxville, uh, Ronnie Garvin, they said, they just, you know, everybody, all the heels are, you know, he's not Mr. Knoxville to any of them. He's still Ronnie Garvin. They explained that Garvin and Robert Fuller had never been a team before today. And they certainly didn't deserve to get a title shot at their belts. Uh, you know, because Les asked them right off, you know, why didn't you put up your belts for this match? Their reasoning was pretty solid, you know, because Robert Fuller and Ronnie Garvin, they haven't ever beat anybody. You know, they just beat two puny Americans right here on TV. And that's the only win they've ever got as a team. Why should we give them a title shot? So it actually made some sense. Rob pointed out that every great team has to start by picking the right partner. So Rob says Mr. Knoxville was not only one of the best wrestlers in the world, but was also loved and admired by fans all across the Southeast that were crazy about him. And the crowd popped, obviously. So then Les asked Mr. Knoxville a question that had nothing to do with the match, but it did have to do with something that came up earlier in the show. He asked Mr. Knoxville about uh, the question that Gorgeous George had asked earlier in the show. He asked him if he was interested in Gorgeous George's money to join the wrestlers in the other dressing room. Mm. Garvin answered that Gorgeous George's money uh, meant nothing to him. He said uh, his focus was on belts and championships. He brought out this point. He says Southeastern wasn't giving him any shots at the world title or even the Southeastern belt. So right now his focus was on the Southeastern tag belts and finding the perfect partner that could help him win those belts. So, and, you know, he said, I tried with Tony Charles last week, and now this week I've got Robert Fuller as my partner. And, uh, you know, he says, I, I want to be champion here, like Ronnie Garvin had been for a long time before I came here, right? The fans <laughs> pop, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so he he, he kind of put everybody back on the trail of, uh, you know, Ronnie Garvin is not Mr. Knoxville. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. No, no doubt. But was Mr. Knoxville a little unnecessarily upset about belts, Ron? I mean, or is that just me? Well, you are paying extremely close attention here, Dave. I tell you that man, uh, you know, uh, my answer is who knows, maybe, hmm. you know, maybe, maybe so. So the last match of the show was the promised championship match of the week. One every week for the entire month of May. That was what was supposed to happen with Southeastern in May of 77. Nelson Royal going to be defending his world title. So Phil Rainey introduced the challenger who was a pretty good wrestler himself and coming into his right at this time was Tommy Rich. So you got Tommy Rich and Nelson Royal on your main event for TV uh, in a world junior championship match. When Nelson Royal got into the studio after Tommy had been introduced, the fans just got all over him, man. He had really upset everybody in the profile, and uh, they were ready to get after Nelson Royal. And uh, Royal was just as confident and cocky as always. Tommy Rich, however, was an extremely strong opponent for any junior heavyweight champion. They had a great match. Wow. It lasted about 15 minutes, a long time for any TV match. And Royal didn't do a whole lot of healing until the very end of the match. And uh, boy, when he opened it up, Mo, he was really, really violent with it. He busted uh, Tommy open and and he really punished him badly after he got him bleeding. Now, he drug him up from the mat a couple of times when he could have easily got the three count. Oh, Wirefire himself. He just was no match that day for the world junior champion, Nelson mm. Royal. Yeah. Royal threw Rich out of the ring after he had pulled him up a couple of times. And he went out, piledrived him on the concrete, threw him back in, and he covered him again. And he was about to pull him up for a third time. And <laughs> Tony Charles shot into the ring, man. Oh, this time he shot in behind Royal. And he spun Nelson Royal around and he hit him with one of those tremendous forearms to the side of the head. It actually lifted Royal's 240-pound body up into the air and over the top rope to the concrete. He never touched the ropes. He actually, I don't know how he did it. He knocked him over the top rope and to the concrete below. Wow. And Nelson hit the concrete. He slid on his back across the floor of the studio and just missed one of the floor cameras and into the wall. And the studio crowd, they erupted, man. Tony went right straight to Tommy Rich just to check on Tommy. And uh, the referee had him ring the bell, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, Tony had no business being in the ring. And the ref went out on the floor, and he went over to raise Royal's hand. Normally, the fans would have been really booing like crazy that Nelson would end up winning this match. But uh, they loved the fact that Nelson Royal couldn't raise his hand. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was unconscious. He was laying there. So he wasn't moving. So the studio crowd was so impressed with Tony's forearm, man, that they were still celebrating it, man. <laughs> they were just cheering like crazy when they probably would have ordinarily been booing. So Tony helped Rich back to the dressing room during the two-minute commercial break, and he returned to Studio B for the final interview of the show. Uh, Royal got helped by the referee and another wrestler, basically almost carried drug, basically, to the set because he was supposed to be on the set for the last interview. When they set him down in the chair <laughs> and, and they turned him loose, he, his head dropped on the desk, bam, and they, they walked away. <laughs> Time for the interview, right? <laughs> so, so Royal's desk, when the red light went on, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be yeah, that's yeah. not going to be the. <laughs> so the red light goes on in the camera, and you know Les is going to talk to Nelson Royal first, and then he's going to go to Tony Charles. Well, you know, <laughs> and Les is still a little mad at Nelson for screwing up his personality profile, so he made a little attempt to get Royal to come to, so he could talk to him. He, he reached over and he took the back of his head and he kind of shook his head a little bit. And then he just uh, he forgot it. He turned and he, he threw it to Tony Charles in, in the other studio. So Tony, uh, you know, Tony wasn't just a great worker. God, he made great interviews, too. And uh, you had that English accent. And I'm going to try to do a little English accent. And oh, no, fans will forgive me. I can't. 
I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to be able to do it like Tony did, but, uh, <laughs> you know, Tony do a, did wonderful interview. So he, he began this interview with the fact that world champions uh, were supposed to act like world champions, that he had been a world champion in Europe and, uh, and what this Nelson Royal fellow had done here today made him extremely unqualified to be any kind of world champion, much less one of the great in this great country of the United States. So, oh, the fans popped, man. They they were so into Tony. And then he continued on. He said uh, he dreamed of winning the World Junior Heavyweight Championship in America long before he even crossed the ocean, uh, the, the the big Atlantic in the and he was honored to be given the opportunity to win such a title in just five short weeks after arrival here. Uh, the crowd popped again. And uh, then he said he was overwhelmed by the support of fans in America. And it was now his goal to honor these fans by relieving this Nelson Royal of his belt and the dishonor of being the worst champion he had ever encountered anywhere in the world. <laughs> he got an even bigger pop. You know, and then he finished off by saying, uh, you know, in my country, the United Kingdom, we have a royal family. You, sir, are such a stain on the sport that you're having the last name of royal is the ultimate disgrace. He says, <laughs> he says I cannot change your name, but I can change your status in the sport. And he says, I shall do next Friday evening when I leave that venue in Knoxville as the new junior heavyweight champion of the world. So, you know, his first major interview. This was his first major interview since coming to Southeastern. And I thought after that interview, Tony was an instant star. Well, while you were doing that accent, just so you know, we all enjoyed a spot of tea. Oh, good. good. Yeah. Very good. So what did Nelson Royal have to say, Ron? Well, absolutely nothing. <laughs> See, so Les is still over there shaking his head and trying to get him to, and uh, he couldn't get his head off the desk. So he just looked at the camera and closed the interviews. He says, uh, Nelson Royal has no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> I love that. All right. I love that. The, the last stud cast. No, wait. The last studcast stud, Terry Funk, kicked you in the face with his cowboy boot, and you could not make the interview at the end of the show. This week, Tony Charles knocks out world champion Nelson Royal, and he can't talk on the last interview. So as a wrestling fan of Southeastern, how could you ever miss a TV show? You never knew what to expect, right? That's crazy. Where to now, Ron? <laughs> well, you know, that's exactly right, man. They did not, they weren't able to uh, figure out what was going to happen. And uh, I love that close, and I love Les's line. Nelson Royal has no comment. It was perfect. So let's talk about the results of that card at the Coliseum on Friday, May 19th, 1977. Young Jerry Stubbs, uh, who was young at this point in his life, beat Billy Howard, Stubbs' cousin, Mike Stalling. They were first cousins at a 20-minute time limit draw when Norvell Austin in the second match. Bob Orton Jr. won over an up-and-coming star out of Memphis, Tommy Gilbert. They had a great match. I watched it, man, and, and I decided I'm going to return that match again the following Friday. So it's going to be on the next week's card. Mr. Knoxville and Robert won in the middle of the ring against the Von Steiger brothers. But Garvin wasn't happy. The belts were at stake. He talked about wanting to win some title, some kind. So Bob Armstrong beat Jerry Lawler in a great no DQ match that was not a championship match. So God, Arms didn't win the title, but he did win the match. And uh, there's going to be more between him and Jerry Lawler. The Southeastern Championship Battle of the Far East between the Mongolian Stomper managed by Gorgeous George Jr. against Tor Tanaka was won by the Mongolian Stomper. Stomper actually dominated the match. And Tor Tanaka on the end of this match had to be carried from the ring when it was over. I mean, uh, Stomper just really had him bloody. He, he stomped him in the face. I don't know how many times. And uh, it's going to be a long time before Tor Tanaka comes back to Southeastern. The main event was the World Junior Heavyweight Championship match. And gosh, it was a tremendous one. 
Nelson Royal came ready for some revenge from being <laughs> blasted on TV. And the fans that night were treated to some spectacular English throws and uh, some uh, awesome forearm smashes from Tony Charles. The match ended with Tony Charles being disqualified because he hit Nelson Roy with one of those forearms strong enough that he went over the top rope and they disqualified Charles for, for the, they didn't throw him over. He knocked him over the top rope. And I'm sure there's going to be controversy when they talk about that match next week on TV. It was the same move that he had knocked him out with on TV. Uh, Royal got his hand raised. But again, he had to be carried to the dressing room. So the stage was set for future returns. Oh, for real. So it sounds like another great night for fans. So how did you, how'd you guys do? Well, we did a 5,700, around 5,700, just below that 6,000 figure. Wow, we were just a tremendous crowd, I thought. I wasn't on that card at all. That made me feel good in a way because I saw that I didn't have to be on it for them to have these big houses. And I would have actually been greedy to expect to draw a sellout on, uh, you know, that type of crowd selling out week after week forever. So this crowd was probably more than most territories in the country were doing in any of their major cities. I was very proud of it. Okay. So I think it's time for us to get that cold drink. Let's take a seat under the learning tree. Once again, what was the question and who, who asked it? So set it up for us once again, Ron. Daryl Bismarck is the gentleman that sent the question, and he kind of made a statement, and then he asked Terry Funk uh, his statement, and he asked a question after this statement, but he began with Terry Funk was becoming even more of a heel in Southeastern in the spring of 1977. He was on two cards in four weeks between April 21st, 1977 and May 12th, 1977. Was he going to be coming back soon? after those two events, and how important was he becoming to Southeastern wrestling? Great questions, Mr. Bismarck. And you're absolutely correct about everything, even the dates of those two appearances. Uh, No doubt Terry Funk had made a significant impression on Southeastern fans. And it all began on the afternoon of October 10th, 1976, when he made his first appearance ever in that part of the country as the NWA world champion. And then he returned six months later, still involved in the world title picture with a chance to get his long-awaited return match with the new champion, Harley Race. All he had to do was beat me. So I won that match on April 21st, 1977. I got the title shot, and I wrestled Harley Race to a one-hour draw. And as a booker, and and with any other world title event set almost immediately for, for nine weeks later, why wouldn't you bring Terry Funk back into the picture? I mean, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, he had tremendous heat. He, he had tremendous matches. He, he even had fans. You know, they didn't want to admit it, but I think they had tremendous respect for Terry Funk. Oh, no, I mean, yeah. yeah. Just watching the way he wrestled and the type of matches that he had, you had to respect him. So three weeks after I'd beaten him to get that first title shot at race, Terry Funk returns again on May the 12th, and this time uh, we're going to have a Texas death match to see who wrestles Harley. So I won that match too, and that's the one we talked about today, basically, and which Terry had uh, just uh, suffered, man, with my fuller leg lock to where I felt sorry for him. So that brings us up to your question, uh, Mr. Bismarck. Uh, Was he going to be coming back soon after those two events? And how important was he becoming to Southeastern wrestling? Well, I got to answer it. Yes, he he was coming back soon. But first, let's answer the question about how important he was becoming to Southeastern. Both he and his brother, Dory Funk Jr., were the only two brothers in history of wrestling to both be NWA world champions. So obviously, during that time frame, they were not just a famous wrestling family. They were probably the most famous wrestling family in the world. Heck, they might have been, if the truth were known about it, they might have been the, the best wrestling family in history, period. Oh. So he was. Obviously, Terry Funk was extremely important to Southeastern. 
These two guys, they owned their own territory in Amarillo, Texas. They were the biggest American stars in all of Japan for many, many years. They were two of the most desired wrestling talents in the world. They turned down offers every day, I'm sure, to wrestle in other territories. Other than the state of Florida, where their relationship with Eddie Graham, uh, Sam Muchnick and the St. Louis Territory, and Paul Bosch in Houston, Southeastern was one of the few territories that ever got the Funks to work for him. Uh, and he was extremely important in Southeastern, Mr. Bismarck, obviously. And once he arrived the first time as NWA world champion, Southeastern's crowds jumped from the 4,000 a show range into the 5,000 plus the show range. Mm-hmm. And they stayed there ever since. Wow. Uh, yeah. That October date, 1976. So that's how important he had become. Yes, he had become extremely important. And to answer the last part of the question, was Terry Funk going to be coming back soon? He certainly was. In fact, he's on the main event for the next stud cast, by golly. And that's <laughs> going to be the card of May 26, 1977 in the Knoxville Coliseum. Wow. All right. So Funk is going to be a part of next week's stud cast, right? So what kind of match was, was he going to be in? Well, you know, uh, sorry, but but I, I guess you're going to have to wait like everybody else to oh. that one, Dave. <laughs> Here we go again. You're never going to stop kayfabing us, are you, Ron? <laughs> Probably not, Dave. Hey, but let me let me ask you. I got to ask for real. How did Funk manage to come and spend time in Southeastern, and what was happening with his own territory during this time? Or was it was he just there long enough to just kind of get the thing done and then go back home? Oh yeah, he would go back home. But uh, you know, Dave, when you wrestled in your territory too much, you lost your punch. Uh, yeah. You lost your ability to I, fill the yeah. building. So it. those guys were smart. They spent a lot of time in Japan, and uh, whenever they worked their own territory, they always sold their houses out. There wasn't any doubt about that. But uh, they did not overbook themselves in their own territory. They were pretty smart about that part of it. They kept themselves in good shape in their own cities. Yeah, he was smart, and and you were smart because you were sharing, and that's a, that's a pretty cool deal that made both of your territories seem even larger. All right, that's that is another another awesome studcast. All right, on Facebook, studcast fans, you can still become friends with Ron on two. Out of his three Facebook pages, simply follow him on his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud and author Ron Fuller Welch pages. Go to either or both and follow the stud to become friends with a legend. Twitter and Instagram on both Ron Fuller Welch. If you have not already heard it, Super Studcast number 41 has shattered records for a Super Studcast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Arn Anderson is absolutely tremendous. He opens up to his good friend, the stud. He talks about his early life, his Southeastern days, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, the Four Horsemen, and his agonizing wrestling injury that almost cost him his life. Find out why these super stud casts are called the best deal in wrestling. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours for only $2.99 with the enforcer, Arn Anderson, and the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. These great Southeastern Continental DVD five-packs still available. 67 matches, 12 hours of pure wrestling history at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. Get your piece of wrestling history for only $39.99 with free shipping. Hundreds of five-star ratings on these DVDs. Ron's greatest story is not about wrestling. Brutus, his first novel, has 55 star ratings and is being called the next Jaws. You've never read anything like this. Get it on Amazon.com and keyword Brutus novel. Or this special rare autographed copy is available straight from the stud at the special tnstud.com, click on stud store and get a deal there with Ron's autograph and get it before it comes a movie. It could happen. All right, Ron, what's up next week? Where do we ride to next week? Well, we've got another great 
today's training. Uh, we're going to take us deep into another aspect of professional wrestling that few even discuss in wrestling podcasts. Terry Funk's going to come back to Southeastern on the great card of May 26, 1977. That card's going to also include a loser leaves Southeastern match and the beginning of a lot of new angles and the arrival very soon of Jola Duke to Southeastern Wrestling. Wow. Also, a new fan's going to get his learning tree question answered. Look forward to it. Oh, no doubt. Sounds like another great one next week, Stud. Yeah, I want to thank everybody before we leave today, Dave, everybody that listens. And, uh, and don't forget to tell your friends out there about us and uh, what we do every week here. And uh, please take care of yourselves, all of you, and others out there as well. And may God bless us all. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.